When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Squids, Women, and Chainsaws edition. It's Wednesday, October 6th, 2021. On today's show, the South Korean show Squid Game is en route to being the most streamed show in the history of Netflix. We discuss this dystopian battle royale satire, and then... The French body horror movie Tatane won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. The grisly gender bender has made its writer-director Julia Ducanau only the second woman to win the Palme d'Or. Dana, the first was? The first was Jane Campion for The Piano. Yes. And then finally, the doe-eyed virgin known as The Final Girl. We discuss a genealogy of this horror movie trope, The Last Girl Standing, the subject of a very cool essay on Slate by Neil McRobert. He's the host of the Talking Scared podcast. Joining me today is Isaac Butler. Isaac, how's it going? It's going all right. How's it going, Steve? Um, hanging in there. You're the author of the forthcoming The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. That's out which day again? February 1st, 2022. Superb, and you will join us to discuss it, I know. Can't and of wait. course, me too. Um, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Dana, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you, Steve? Uh, good. Give me your title and subtitle, please. <laughs> You're the best unpaid publicist, Steve. I love it. My book is called Cameraman. Uh, it's about Buster Keaton. It's coming out on January 25th, 2022. Uh, that's uh, also known as my birthday, Dana Stevens. That's right. We have to celebrate it in style, Steve. I know. Duh, duh, two magnums of champagne, please. Um, all right. Shall we make a show? Let's, let's do, so. do it. Okay, let's let's do this. Squid Game is currently the top-ranked show on Netflix, but that's a, a gross understatement. It's on its way to being the most watched show ever, really. I mean, if it ends up the most streamed show on Netflix, it's the most streamed show ever, and it's probably the most watched TV show ever. It's so popular, a South Korean broadband provider is now suing Netflix over usage costs. Anyway, Squid Game is a new take on an old uh, theme, the old battle royale genre, uh, maybe best known, I think, to listeners from the movie Hunger Games, in which a group of contestants fight one another in a uh, fabricated game-like environment. They're forced to kill one another until there's a single surviving winner. To this, Squid Game adds several curious twists. The contestants are all down on their luck South Koreans who, for one reason or another, are so badly off, they're typically deeply in debt, they will risk anything for this prize money. I mean, you obviously have to be at the absolute extremes of social despair to agree to do this, but they do agree to do it. Another curious twist about the show that we'll get into. Among them, we have our hero, anti-hero. He's Seong Gi-hun, a man entering middle age who still lives like a child. He's at home with his mother. He's out of work. He's a ne'er-do-well. He likes to gamble. And in the first episode of the show, he blows the last of uh, his little family's tiny nest egg. He's recruited by a mysterious stranger, a smoothie in a business suit, into the squid game. He's gassed unconscious, taken to a remote island, housed in a soulless barracks, and he begins to compete against a couple hundred or so others in what are child's games, familiar games from the playground, the backyard. And by the end of each round, contestants have been eliminated, i.e. slaughtered. Um, this is a hermetic and pitiless world in which solidarity is all but impossible. And it's meant, of course, in some level to echo our own. We'll also get into that. It's a satire. But Isaac, let me start with you. Maybe describe the aesthetic of the show. It's very distinctive, the tone and feel of it. You have a very dark world offset by bright preschool colors in the, I guess, arena, you'd call it, that they're competing in. Talk about this uh, crazy hit show. Yeah. I mean, th that is one of the things, and probably the thing that I 
liked the most about it, um, other than its its lead performance, is the kind of aesthetic sensibility that it that it has. You know, it, it has these bright, bright colors. The the jailers, I guess you could call them, who are sort of themselves kind of down on their luck schlubs that work for this game, wear these kind of pink jumpsuits and these um, fencing masks with 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 shapes on them that denote their rank. They're either a circle or a triangle or a square. Um, and the music is actually really great. It's really um, suspenseful and, and strange. In fact, we have a little clip where we can hear a little bit of it. The environments that the games themselves are played in almost look like, you know, sort of like someone has tried to build a video game, you know, a, a level out of out of real materials. Um, I, I, I don't know about the two of you. I found this show almost unbearable. I found it unbelievably distressing to watch. In the first episode, you see 200 people get shot in the head. I mean, it's a, you actually just sit there and watch a massacre for about 15 minutes. And uh, that keeps happening episode after episode because they start with 400 some odd contestants and they're narrowing it down to one, right? Uh, I, I kept watching it in hopes that it would grab me the way it seems to have grabbed the public, but it actually just filled me with greater and greater levels of despair. In particular, I feel like there seems to be, just from looking online, a disconnect between the kind of critical take on the show, which is that this is a, an intentionally difficult to watch and unpleasant uh, critique of global capitalism, and the kind of online fan response to it, which is that this is an exciting show filled with, filled with thrilling twists and turns. Hmm. And um, uh, that in particular, I, I, I don't know, there's just something about it that 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 really turned my stomach as I was watching it. It made me feel very bad for the state of humanity, to be completely honest. Dana Isaac gets right at the nub of it in a way. I mean, this is a dark, dark show, I think, and in you know, critical viewer or whatever you want to call it would watch it with mounting feeling of nausea, dread, and even complicity, right? Um, and I guess you buy off your conscience by saying it's actually an astute satire. It, it reflects the horrors of the world that we actually live in back to us the way 1984 does, for example. I'm watching it to be morally enlightened, to discover that it's maybe the, going to be the biggest hit in the history of television viewing uh, for its thrill kills. How does that make you feel? I mean, I wonder if that is why people are watching it. I think the most interesting thing about Squid Game is why is it such a huge hit? And I would be mm. really interested to see an audience survey, especially in different countries, since it's basically been a hit all over the world, to see how people are responding to it. I'm also curious whether people are watching the dubbed or subtitled version, um, because both versions were watched in my household. I watched it with subtitles, or as much of it as I could get through. I agree, Isaac, that it's very, very grim viewing, and I made it through about four and a half episodes and then just thought, I get it, I <laughs> can't go on. Um, but my partner watched the same show with dubbing a few days earlier because the subtitles are so poorly done on Netflix and a lot of the dialogue isn't translated at all. And that's just those are two such completely different experiences because then, of course, you don't hear the same performances and it has this this sort of strange sterile quality, which in a way goes with the show. Mm. But at any rate, I'm not responding to the show now. I'm just responding to the phenomenon of the show. And maybe that's because, like Isaac, I, I just found it such a grindingly unpleasant experience. Well, actually, that's not completely true. The first episode, the very first episode before the premise is established and before the main character who's wonderfully played by the Korean superstar Lee Jung Jae is pretty funny. I mean, he's played for some mm -hmm. broad comedy in the first episode and, you know, you could sort of see what a misfit he is in his world and in his family and how he would end up being so desperate that he would agree to this crazy, essentially being sort of consensually kidnapped and taken away to, to play this game with these hundreds of strangers. But that all kind of drops away. And I feel like the, after that, the show is very sketchy in its treatment of these people's lives. I mean, it reminded me in some ways of of war movies where conventional kinds of war movies where you're introduced to a bunch of soldiers just to watch them be picked off one by one. And that kind of treatment of characters as potential cannon fodder or, you know, game fodder. Uh, is just is just not something that's going to keep me watching for that long. Mm -hmm. I will say that this show is original. You're right, Isaac, that the design scheme when they're in that game world is sort of amazing. 
And there's something so unusual about it, even though the the premise, obviously, the Hunger Games style, most dangerous game premise is very familiar. But the way the story treats it is original. And I can see why people can't stop watching it. But I could stop watching it all too easily. In fact, it was hard for me to start each new episode as it began. Yeah, I'm at the end of episode six. And and, uh, as with each episode, I've ended on the fence about whether I'll continue and then just click you know, next episode. Uh, I'm sure I'll watch it to the end. I do want to see how it ends. I love the performance of the lead unreservedly. It's probably the one thing about it that I that I love to that extent. But um, let me let me point out two things that I think the show is astute about. Um, it, it, first of all, it, it its obvious social point comes from the observation that these are people who've lost the game that we're all playing out in the real world. And that game is so pitiless, so stacked, uh, uh, you know, so unlevel, its playing field is so unlevel that some people become kind of almost absolute losers, even though they, you know, in some sense, formally at least live in a quote-unquote free world, you can end up so radically unfree thanks to your financial circumstances. And like Parasite, this is a South Korean genre picture, social satire disguised as a genre picture, and it's pretty astute about you know how people end up like that, and indebtedness is a big background theme to this. I mean, these people aren't facing, out in the real world, they're not facing death row, they're facing uh, uh, insurmountable accumulated debts in a system that was designed to turn them into peons. The original meaning of the word peon is supposed to thrust peonage upon them so that they live in a perpetual state of fear and subservience so that your one in 400 some odd chance uh, uh, is better. It's marginally better than only one thing you can think of, which is actually committing suicide. You're willing to take those odds. So that incredible sense of pervasive darkness. Um, The second thing I think it's very astute about is it's a combination of these bright primary color painted almost preschool-like interiors and the survival in Auschwitz uh, vibe that the whole thing begins to take on, the drab barracks that they're all staying in, the sense that, you know, the the, the horrible kind of primo levy dilemma thrust on people in the concentration camps is solidarity is totally necessary and totally impossible at the same time. In one sense, you have to form alliances, you have to trust and be trusted. At the same time, you cannot trust anybody. You have to be able to liquidate those bonds of association and and possible feeling at a moment's notice, or you will end up among the dead. And so it's, it's that I do think the show does something beautifully over and over and self-consciously over and over and over again, which is the balance between that um, that pitifulness and tenderness that I think people in these circumstances would feel. Um, that said, you know, Isaac, I think it bears just saying a very basic thing out loud in relation both to this movie and to Tain, which we're going to discuss, is I-, I get that there's a meta-commentary on violence going on in both you know the mo- the movie we're discussing in the TV show, but how accustomed we've become in our entertainment to repetitive and extreme acts of violence. I I I was floored by that, and I'm inclined to to really admire this TV show, but still, it was it was really really stomach turning. I just wonder if is that is that artistically justifiable here? Um, I'm not sure to be completely honest. I you know some of the reviews that we read for prep make the argument that the violence is is so horrific and unsanitized uh mm-hmm. on purpose right to make you right. really think about each of those deaths and i and i take that point although i'm not entirely sure that's true there's a part of me that feels like it's done to raise the narrative stakes so that you'll want to keep watching until mm-hmm. the next episode um i i go back and forth on that i i will say that you know the massacres that you watch along with the thematic structures that you just described, Stephen, which I I think you're accurate in describing what the show is doing, but it's really repetitive on both of those scores without, Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. developing either of those ideas in an interesting way any further. Once you get to the end of the second 
episode or, or maybe like a little bit of the way into the honeycomb game in the which i think is in the third like the show has made the points that it's going to make mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. doesn't feel like there's anything more for it to do whereas to talk about the film that you compared it to parasite which i think is a is a truly brilliant movie i mean that film keeps complicating and elaborating and flipping things yes. on you over and over and over again, whether it's about genre or about theme or about character or about social structure, like it keeps finding new ideas. And so by the time it climaxes in a truly horrific series of violent acts, um, it's really taken you somewhere and done something. Whereas I, I, I just felt like this was continually making the same point. I don't, I don't really want to watch a TV show and be thinking about Auschwitz all the fucking time. Oh, I, you know what I mean? Like, I just like, I, I know capitalism is bad, you know, like, like I just, at some point I was like, I am not, this isn't doing anything beyond upsetting me. There is not another move it's making. The way it complicated for me was that, you know, they have to team up or they're going to die. You can't you can't play this game and make it toward the final rounds without teammates and cooperation. So, you know, there, there are these solidarity breeds, these little moments of genuine tenderness between people who will have to eventually not only betray one another, but effectively kill one another. And it's the tiny accretions of those little acts of tenderness as you head towards this inevitably horrific conclusion, right? Um, that that give the show its power to me and have, are, are going to keep me watching it till the end. I'm mean, giving an example. I thought the betrayal of an older person in this was done with real sensitivity. What would it be like for a you know pretty aged man to be... Uh, uh, in this world. And at one point I doesn't give anything away in the course of the show. He, he soils himself and just the little act of, 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 of humanity of covering him up because this other character, our protagonist understands the depth of that humiliation and what he must be feeling. I thought that that was, I thought that was beautifully, beautifully delivered. Yeah, Steve, I haven't gotten to that point in the show yet, but I think that relationship between our protagonist, played by Lee Jung-jae, and that older man is one of the few relationships that I believe in this story and that doesn't seem completely contrived in that cannon fodder way that I was describing earlier. Something we haven't mentioned that I think is a weak point of this show, and it takes it very far from the world of uh, something like like Parasite, for example, is the villains. The villains are, are terrible in this show. I mean, I haven't gotten far enough to, to learn sort of who's behind these masks and these hot pink hazmat suits that all the bad guys in the <laughs> gaming world wear. But any adventure story or thriller type story in which the villains are these completely masked, identical creatures and are are very rarely or maybe never revealed to be who is beneath the mask, who's an actual human with a story, is just boring to me. It reminds me of the stormtroopers in, in the Star Wars movies, which always seemed like the most boring villains possible. Like, it's some more guys in white armored suits coming to kill you with lasers. And that was why the moment when John Boyega's character in The Last Jedi emerges from his stormtrooper suit and, you know, becomes a rebel, becomes a different kind of character, is so exciting because it's the, the shedding of this anonymous face of evil but so far, at least in this show, we haven't gotten past that. And that in itself makes it a less interesting parable or allegory to me. I mean, if you take something like Parasite, as Isaac was saying, you know, who appears to be the villain suddenly gets, you know, reveal a new face is revealed or somebody who we thought was our protagonist does something unexpectedly horrible and we have to question their morality. That doesn't seem to happen in this show. And mm-hmm. so insofar as those guys in the hot pink hazmat suits just represent capitalism with a capital C, yes. I don't think they're do- they're doing anything beyond right. that. I mean, maybe this is just going back to what Isaac said of sort of like, I get it. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that more twists are to come and more characters are going to die in horrible ways and betray each other. But as of almost exactly halfway through four and a half episodes, I've I've already gotten it. This is one of those times you're confident the vast majority of the listeners of this podcast are actually consuming this cultural item and will have a very definite opinion about it that is probably frictional to ours at many specific points. So do email us at culturefestatslate.com. I'd love to hear what you know the listeners of this show are making of this particular uh, uh, entertainment product. Okay, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business in our podcast. Uh, Dana, what do we have? Steve, our first item of business is just to remind listeners that we're doing a book club, which we haven't done in a long time. So next week, we're going to be talking about Sally Rooney's new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? So we're all reading that now and prep for next week if you want to join us or listen to the audiobook if you like. And if you want to let us know what you think of the book as you're reading, you can send us an email at culturefest at slate.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. Our next item of business is just to tell you that today's Slate Plus segment is once again a listener request. A listener named Hannah wrote in to ask if we have any favorite books, movies, or shows or other cultural items that deal specifically with parenthood. All three of us on the show are parents this week, so I'm sure we will have a lot of recommendations on that score. Slate Plus members can hear that bonus segment at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up costs only a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the segment I just mentioned. You also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate podcasts like Slow Burn and The Political Gab Fest. And, of course, you get unlimited access to all the writing on Slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. And I should also mention that you'd be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues at Slate. These memberships are really important to keep the magazine going. So please, if you would, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Titane is the second feature from writer-director Julia Ducanau. Her first was the movie Raw. This one begins with a small girl we're meant to take her as a bad seed child whose misbehavior in the backseat causes a car accident. And the car accident requires to have a titanium plate sewn permanently into her skull. Smash cut to the present. She's now a stripper with, uh, we're meant to see, quite a fan base. She's still cold, detached, and hostile, to put it very mildly, as we discover. She's a serial killer. She uses a long, I don't know, I guess knitting needle or hairpin. She uses a knitting needle as a hairpin uh, to dispatch her victims. How to even describe what happens next? She has sex with a car and becomes pregnant with its child. She botches a kill and changes her identity, changing her look to be far more masculine. She pretends she's a missing boy, a milk carton kind of boy, and reunites with that boy's father, claiming she's the long-lost child. He's a middle-aged and very macho firefighter who takes her in, not knowing, but maybe also kind of knowing that this is not actually his son. The movie's in French, so we also don't really have a clip here. Dana, I'm just going to start with you. I, I, I mean, I, I kind of wrote down one word watching this movie. Wow. I mean, I think one place to start is that Titan won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. And Cannes is just this very specific festival that always has to have this succès de scandale kind of movie that leaves everybody shocked and divided and people storming out of the theater and throwing up and others passionately defending it. Someday I want to go to Cannes in person just so I can experience that, you know, the Cannes hysteria uh, in person. But Titan seems to have been that movie this year. And it's, so it's that kind of provo- deliberately provocative, edgy, raw movie that wants to mess with the audience's head. So depending on whether you like to have your head messed with, uh, you might or might not consider this movie to be worth the, um, the grueling experience that it is to watch it. For me, this was a movie of highly diminishing returns, but I will say that it takes a turn in the middle, um, and I won't give away more than you already have, Steve, but around this moment that, you know, she starts to, the protagonist starts to fake her way into this fireman's life by pretending to be his long-lost son, where at the very least, um, it ceases to be simply a string of serial murders, which is all the first maybe 40 minutes of the movie is. So if you make it that far into this movie, if you want to watch someone murder almost everyone she meets with a knitting needle for 40 minutes, then you will get to a part of the movie that has some unexpected moments of human relationship and uh, a a really great performance by Vincent Landon as the the fireman. Um, It still doesn't really make much sense dramatically to me. And I really want to hear Isaac as, you know, dramaturge that you are, Isaac. I want to hear what you think of that development in in the middle section. But I found it really hard to get any empathy going with this main character, simply because 
she was presented, as you say, Steve, as a kind of bad seed from the beginning, right? We see her as a, a child played by a child actor caught, seeming to cause a car accident by her malevolence. And and then that car accident in turn seems to make her into this metal human hybrid. So it's this kind of Cronenbergian thing where she's attracted to cars and has sex with cars. But I don't know what motivates her ever. I don't know what motivates her to murder people or stop murdering people or decide to forge this relationship with this one guy. And I don't know what how we're supposed to feel about that relationship. And I guess you could say that that's Julia Ducourneau, the writer director, shocking me and you know getting taking me off balance or something like that. But I I kind of felt over this movie by about an hour in, and I probably would have abandoned it if I weren't watching it for the Culture Fest because I was angry at it for taking me on this journey where I have to see so many gross, horrible things and witness so many murders and. And not really understand why any of it's happening or what I'm supposed to get out of it. So I guess I would say that this felt to me like an edgelord kind of movie, even though I know it's trying to be the reverse. I know it's trying to be all about gender fluidity. And when I read interviews with the director, I think that sounds amazing. I can't wait to see that movie. But that doesn't feel like the movie that I saw, a movie that's, you know, all about opening yourself up to different conceptions of gender. It just, to me, felt like a movie that wanted to take your eyeballs and grind them against an emery board (laughs) for no apparent reason. Uh, Isaac, uh, were your eyeballs ground against an emery board? Or um... I mean, there were definitely times where I was cringing so hard that I think my skeleton was visible through my through my skin. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a was, it's, it a, was it a metal skeleton? It was, it was a metal skeleton. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a the movie is a visceral experience in every meaning of that uh, of that term, you know. It, but it it is really two different movies. And they don't go together. That's the thing. You know, there's the movie of its first 30, 45 minutes about this this serial killer uh, who also has a metal plate in her head and is impregnated by a Chevrolet and kills people with a knitting needle and um, does this. Are you sure about the the make of the car? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. It says Chevrolet. Yeah. Eyes are peeled. And then there's the movie about that same character kind of going under disguise as this um, fireman's son. Um there are certain themes that connect them, particularly around gender. I mean, I think a lot of what this movie wants to be about is gender and performance, but there's also this thing about kind of the human and the post-human and, you know, the the slipperiness of the self and all this stuff. But but none of it really coheres um, uh, into anything, you know? I mean, it, it, the, the, the closest comp for me is that movie, that Scarlett Johansson movie, um, Under the Skin, mm-hmm. is that what it yeah. was called? Yeah. You know, it, it sort of reminded me of, of that in a lot of ways in which you have this filmmaker who has like a really incredible technical sense and, 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 um, sensational sensibility. I mean, the movie looks amazing and there's a number of sequences in it where I was like, holy shit, how did you film that or think of that? That's incredible. Um, But also ultimately kind of doesn't go anywhere or do enough with uh, uh, its ideas was sort of my, my feeling about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let me begin by saying up front that the director is a huge admirer of David Cronenberg and she, she, I agree that she's, what she's doing with the camera in this movie is extraordinary. I am not a big Cronenberg fan and body horror is by and large just gross to me. Um, and secondly, I mean, as with Squid Game, what is going on in the world that that uh, creators believe that between you and witnessing human decency and tenderness on screen first, you know, you must go th- over some gigantic hump of alienation, dread, and and gore. I mean, just outright. I mean, I I thought the I Dana would have turned this movie off as well if I weren't watching it for work. I found it, you know, de- decadent beyond decadent. The violence was just so fucking over the top and so pitiless. And I'm not sure I understand what's achieved by depicting this person with whom we are finally finally going to get dramatic sympathy, form a bond of dramatic sympathy with, having them be so radically Nietzschean, like completely beyond good and evil, and so totally damaged. And the movie makes an interesting statement up front by having the little girl pre-accident be a, a bad seed, be a kind of super low affect, you know, behaviorally challenged kid in the tiny clip we get of her first. It's not the accident that makes this kid kind of anti-human in some level, um, or the titanium plate in her head. And but 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 think about 
the cost to the themes of the movie by making these two incompatible plots and ethics go together, right? Because you're yoking a story about kind of anti-human ultraviolence, which is the distinctive thing about her in the first part of the movie, to a story of gender fluidity and acceptance in ways that it's just it's just borderline rendered me speechless this movie it's it's got a certain kind of you know amoral self-importance to its aesthetic and vibe to get at a point that it could have gotten to Isaac another way i think which is that this person wants acceptance wants to exist beyond the you know gender imprisonment you know uh, that's been thrust upon her by society she wants to create a provisional family. I mean, it's almost as if people are so terrified about how trite those things sound in a world that's grown as just so jaded as ours that to quote unquote earn it, first you have to have her be depicted as a heartless butcher. Right, right. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because th- there's a thing I wrote down while watching it, which is that she manages to smuggle herself into this this family um structure with with the the father figure in part because she kind of embodies because she can't talk so but she embodies the kind of ways we think about trauma and she uses that as part of the con so for example she doesn't speak and they take that to be because the the kidnapped boy that that she is disguising herself as was so traumatized that he's lost the ability to speak right um for example or the the way she just sort of responds to the world they all misinterpret that as being about the the trauma that that the boy she's masquerading as must have experienced and i feel like in a weird way that's kind of a metaphor for how the movie uses its gender and performance studies thematic content right that like is it really about that all that stuff that you just said Stephen I'm not I'm not sure or is it about the kind of riotous technique of of that opening tracking shot and about in how much the director clearly is 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 thrilled by these totally bonkers and often beautiful actually but totally bonkers images that she's she's put together in this film i mean that you know i i will agree that 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 there's many things about this movie that i felt provoked and 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 enraged by you know but but i often felt like that's actually what the film's actually after it's not actually after all this, the the kind of post-human, post-gender stuff that's coming up in in the interviews. That's not what it's really interested in on some level. I mean, it does that stuff. And that's certainly why if people are talking about it a decade from now, they'll be talking about it. But what it, what it's really interested in is, you know, the technical aspects of the way it's filmed and the outrageousness of its content. Yeah, I wish that there was one of us who had more sympathy toward this movie, because first of all, I just like segments where we we don't completely agree and it doesn't feel like a pylon. But I, I think that I'm I'm pretty much with everything that Isaac just said. But then I'm just also thinking about, you know, people's response to this movie and how many people responded very intensely positively to it. Right. How many tweets that I saw from fellow film critics or film lovers saying, I can't wait to watch Titan again. It's the most ex- exciting movie I've seen this year. Because again, if I saw all this on paper, I am a Cronenberg fan. I mean, I think great Cronenberg is, is as great as horror movies get. And I appreciate that she is taking it to a different place and using it to think about gender in a different way and with this female protagonist. But that protagonist just doesn't, to me, doesn't rise to the level of earning my respect. Like, I I need to care about her more and understand why she committed all those murders in the first place and not have it suddenly turn into a tender family drama about pregnant car babies. <laughs> so I want somebody to, to tell me why I'm wrong and why we're not looking at this movie right. And if anybody out there wants to sit through the stomach churningness of... Uh, 40 minutes of knitting needle murders to get to the juicy part in the middle and explain it to me, I would be grateful. The one sequence that I would just like really was like, wow, that's amazing is um, the dance scene at the very end towards the very end of the movie in the firehouse. I was like, right. Oh, that's, that's the movie that if the movie was this the whole mm-hmm. time, yeah, I would think fair. it was a masterpiece. That scene is incredible. Again, like it, as, as with squid game, I really want, listeners who 
responded to this material to email us and tell us we're wrong and why. Um, all right, the movie is Titane. It's uh, only in theaters now. Uh, check it out, but if you can't, you know, wait till it comes on streaming and uh, and then let us know. Okay, moving on. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Neil McRobert is the host of the Talking Scared podcast. His new piece for Slate is about the final girl trope in horror movies. You know what that is, the female lone survivor at the end of a slasher movie. Neil, great piece and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for for liking the piece. You write these things and you never know how it's going to go. I know you think that they just float into the ether, but thankfully sometimes they don't. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast before we get going? I'll keep it very simple. I Every week, on Talking Scared, I interview a prominent or emerging horror author, um, or horror adjacent sometimes, it's a, it's a broad church, um, and we speak about their books, their, their lives, their inspirations, all of that thing. It's a kind of deep dive into the workings of, 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 of macabre creatives. I love it. Okay, let's let's dive in here. I love, I, funnily enough, I'd never heard of the final girl trope, but of course, as soon as you hear the phrase, you know exactly what it refers to. <laughs> Nonetheless, like, give us a little potted history of of the final girl. The final girl is a a term that was ostensibly coined by a a, a feminist film critic called Carol Clover. Um, I think in nineteen. 1992, I believe, though don't quote me on that, 91 or 92, she released a, a book called Men, Women and Chainsaws, gendering the, the horror movie, uh, in, in which she kind of looked at horror cinema and horror media from a, a feminist standpoint, looking for misogyny, all of these things that, you know, since then have become very self-referential. We, we now know about them at the time. That was overlooked. And what, what she kind of really nailed down was this idea of the final girl being the very typical template-driven female character who survives the killer's massacre. And whilst I, I think what she revealed was that whilst it's very easy on, on a surface level to think of a film like Halloween um, as, as easily feminist because it's about a woman overcoming male rage, in fact, it's much more complex than that because these women are pigeonholed massively as largely asexual. They eschew all kinds of salacious behaviour. They're, they're very, very good girls. Um, and they often have male names. So was Laurie in Halloween, all the way through to Sydney in Wes Craven's mm -hmm. Scream. They have male names which, which desexualise them. And in my opinion as I say in my article, I think it was a kind of um, conservative Trojan horse that was slipped inside a media that was largely aimed at young people. I think it was a kind of secret guide to how to be a good girl within this otherwise very extreme media. I, I love it. I mean, I love among the many things you said that that I love is, is this idea that, you know, genre pictures happen upon a set of conventions, academics abstract from them to a thesis about those conventions, and then genre picture makers assimilate the academics observation in a meta way, an ironical way into what they're doing, almost to inoculate it against what might be misogynistic or patriarchal or, or, or otherwise uh, um, you know, unsavory about them. I mean, the great example you give is in Scream, the Wes Craven classic, um, you, as you say, it ushered the slasher into a phase of heightened self-awareness. Uh, it explicitly laid out the genre's puritanically simple rules. Have sex, you die. 
take drugs, you die. Yeah. And you just put that in a really beautiful way. I, <laughs> I, I, I spent many years writing a PhD about self-referential tendencies in horror. Um, and I don't think I ever quite put the process as, as succinctly as you just did. You just got Metcalfed. <laughs> there you go it's a skill um yeah i mean craven's scream remains even now the kind of high watermark of of self-referentiality and and, and that that beautiful tightrope between parody and pastiche between deconstructing the genre whilst also perpetuating the genre um and, and that's why you know that everyone still refers back to scream as as the kind of the, the, the key text. But the two books that I mention in the piece I wrote for Slate, in my opinion, are quite genuinely the first texts in any media to, to push that conversation along. Because I, I talk about um, two books, basically two books came out this summer, one by Grady Hendrix called The Final Girl Support Group, the other by Stephen Graham Jones, who is a phenomenal horror writer. And that one is called My Heart is a Chainsaw. And they, they both take the final girl as a trope that we understand implicitly. And then we look at them in a different context than these films normally provide. Um, and, and for me, and I can go into more detail about them, but for me, what they do that Craven didn't do in Scream is they bring earnestness and meaning back into that parody. Because whereas Scream is an exercise in intellect and humour in many ways, the two books I just mentioned really drive home the fact that these are books about women being harmed and hunted and traumatized. And that has to mean something more than just fan service. Yeah. You know, one thing your article really brought up is the great lengths that they seem to feel are necessary to make us sympathize with a woman who's being hunted by a man. Like it's not enough to be a woman being hunted by a man. That's not enough to make her sympathetic. In order for her to be sympathetic at the end, there has to be this sort of elaborate, uh, you know, series of, of very restrictive tropes that the character has to pass through in order to make us finally root for her, which is a very strange and chilling thing to spend some time thinking about. And it sounds like Stephen Graham Jones and Grady Hendrix actually spent quite a bit of time thinking about that as they kind of constructed these books. Well, right. I mean, that, that is a lot to unpack. That's a really kind of interesting way to look at it. I mean, I'll, I'll say a few things that I'll say it briefly. I have to be very careful, first of all, because I'm somebody, you know, who is, you know, proudly part of the horror community. And I don't think I made it explicit enough in my piece that I, I genuinely do not believe that if you read a horror novel or watch a horror film, that you are in any way kind of damaged or or wrong or, or anything like that. It's, it's a thing that's thrown at horror fans a lot, that there must be something right. wrong with you, you know. But you still have to confront the fact, and I asked Grady about this, you have to confront the fact that particularly with the slasher subgenre, not only are these films predicated on the victimization of women, they're also films that are almost always at the more lightweight end of the horror spectrum. They're, they're often not very weighty at all. They are simple propositions, man with knife or other phallic object, chasing woman, you know. Um, and we, we, are, we are conditioned to treat that narrative format as, you know, very lightweight entertainment. So that's, a, that's a, not a problem, but something we have to really question, I think. Um, and, and what both of these books do is asked that question. Grady's book looks at these final girls as if they were real years after the, the, the events that, you know, that brutalize them and says, look, you know, this stuff does not end when the credits roll. Trauma lives on and it explores that aspect of it. And um, Stephen's book, I would argue even more profoundly, looks at what the real lived trauma of many, many women around the world is and says, that's the real horror. We don't need to create this spectacle. You know, the, 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 there's one part in the book where the, the protagonist, Jade, the great victory is that she realises she does not need to um, aspire to the template of the final girl because her life is already so much harder and has already made her a much greater hero than those films ever could. Um, so, yeah, they, they're saying a lot. They are saying a lot. And, and both books do wrestle with exactly the point you made. 
Neil, I'm wondering, you say that this is these two books are to you as a as a longtime horror fan and somebody who's been working on horror in a scholarly way for a long time. They're the first time that you've seen this final girl trope get twisted in this way. And I'm just wondering, going back to its history in the movies, um, if there are any particular places that you would point viewers to, um, where are the most most remarkable final girls in movies, whether because, you know, they adhere so classically to all the rules of the form or because they break the form, you know, like where, where are the signposts? final girls in, in horror movie history. Right. Well, for a start, the, the piece I put together makes the claim that these final girls are incredibly reductive. That's not actually quite as generally true as I've made out for the purposes of kind of brevity. There are kind of outliers. And, and weirdly, one of the first outliers is one of the very first final girls. Um, and you'll have to forgive me because the name of the characters kind of escapes me. But back in the film Black Christmas, which is often considered the first true slasher. It's a film set in a sorority house over Christmas when um, a guy is is basically taunting these women, these young women. Um, The final girls in that are, they really do break the mold because they do drink, they do have sex, they do take drugs, all of those things. And and, and it it feels kind of like a proto version of the final girl. The, everyone else's key final girl, the one that really, you know, is the would be on the poster is Laurie Strode, Jane Lee Curtis from Halloween. She is the archetypical type. Um, and if you'll allow me, I'll come back to her in a second. Going on further, you've got Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street, um, again, who who fits the mold. She's very kind of girl next door, but in an, in an asexual way. The one that really I think a lot of kind of modern listeners will be aware of is Sidney Prescott from Scream, who is aware of the rules and kind of really empowered by the rules to fight back. She still has a lot of those tropes. Her name is masculinized. Her clothing is um, is very conservative, all of that stuff. But she's armed with some knowledge of what's going on. And I think that makes a difference. But very briefly, to go back to Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, the really interesting thing with her is that with the recent kind of retconning of the Halloween franchise, um, David Gordon Green's Halloween and Halloween Kills, which is coming out very soon, they basically cleared the table and said, like, the last, like, eight sequels of the franchise don't exist. We're going back to what happened after the, the first and second movies. And she's the only final girl... I can really think of whose stature has grown to rival the man with the mask or to rival the villain, who is the person that we normally mythologize. But the marketing around the new Halloween films, I would say, prioritize Laurie over Michael. And for me, that's a really important step forward. Well, Neil McRobert is the host of uh, Talking Scared podcast. Neil, this was a tremendous, tremendously good segment um, pegged to your tremendously good piece. That piece is The Final Girl Breaks Out. It's up on Slate now by Neil McRobert. Neil, thanks so much. This was a great segment. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan 
to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I'm going to start off my endorsement with a little response to the um, the reader response to our third segment last week, which was about ebooks. First of all, I wanted to say that that ebook segment was my idea. I brought it into our weekly meeting about what our topics would be after reading an article in The Atlantic by Ian Bogost that was the piece we were discussing titled Ebooks Are an Abomination, which, by the way, is not how I would have titled our segment. And I wanted to just address some of the reader pushback that we got, some of which I think is legitimate and some of which I think isn't. So, First of all, I want to make clear that that segment was not meant to, nor do I think it did in practice, dismiss ebooks or the people who read them. We weren't trying to say, if you read ebooks, you're not really reading, or those aren't really books. My idea was to sort of investigate why ebooks have not taken over the market, why they didn't do the thing that some people feared they would 15 years ago or whenever they started to become a thing and take over the market that that print books currently occupy. Why have they not risen above 11% of the the books sold uh, in America? But one of the criticisms that some listeners wrote in with is that to dismiss ebooks is to be ableist. And I think that they have a point there, and that is something that we should have addressed more completely. It's something that I was trying to gesture toward in that segment when I talked about my mom, who in her late 70s, early 80s, started switching over to ebooks and reads ebooks sort of interchangeably with regular books now. That's not necessarily related to disability. My mom's not disabled, but she is older, and I'm sure it's related in part to her vision and not wanting to lug around a lot of heavy books, et cetera. So several people wrote in to say things like, you know, I read on ebooks because I have tendonitis, one person said, and can't hold a regular book. Other people had vision issues. All of those obviously are completely legitimate reasons to read books electronically and Another thing people wrote in about that I think is just unrelated is audiobooks. And why didn't we talk about audiobooks? And that maybe is just a question of, you know, it's a whole separate segment. The piece that we were talking about was specifically about electronic reading. Audiobooks are obviously something completely different that harks back, as one listener pointed out in their email, to an oral tradition. And I know if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that I'm a huge fan of audiobooks. In fact, that leads me to the closest thing I have to an endorsement. I don't want to take up all this segment um, just talking about the response to the ebook segment. But uh, I did listen to a great audiobook this week that I wanted to point listeners to. It's a memoir by Alan Cumming, the actor, singer, queer activist. I think everybody knows who Alan Cumming is, um, a beloved figure in show business. And he wrote a beautiful, beautiful memoir in 2014 called Not My Father's Son that is a very unexpected memoir from him. It's not a show business kind of memoir. He actually has a new one out, uh, which I'm reviewing for the New York Times, which is why I went back to listen to this older one. And uh, and he, it turns out that Alan Cumming had this absolutely brutally traumatic childhood that he miraculously survived and you know managed to become a, a happy and successful person in his life. I won't give away much about it, but it's essentially about his sadistic father and the very violent childhood that he had in rural Scotland and how he grew up and got out of that world. It's narrated by Alan coming in his wonderful Scottish accent. And uh, he's just such charming company and actually a very funny writer, even though he's writing about some very grim things. So it's called Not My Father's Son by Alan Cumming, if you want to just have a lullaby-like Scottish voice tell you a pretty harrowing story. But before we go to the next endorsement, I just wonder if either of you have any thoughts on this this ebook question that got such um, our listeners so riled up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I read ebooks, as I said in that segment, you know, I mean, it's not a majority of my reading, but it's probably like a quarter of my reading. I, I read ebooks. I have a bad back, so I don't like carrying around huge hardcover books. My um, father, as he ages, his eyesight has gotten worse and worse, and he exclusively reads ebooks on his iPad with the font at the maximum size now because that's that's how he can read. I do also think, you know, of course, for the three of us as writers, one of the reasons why we became writers is because of the romance we had with the physical object of the book as children you know i mean almost every writer i know had that experience and it's and it, and so you know for what we're really talking about is sort of the the different aspects of these these experiences and, and i guess what some of the positives and negatives of both of them are uh i am actually going to recommend two things the first of which will be in ebook form um i've had a lot of trouble sleeping lately 
And I don't really want to turn on the light because it'll wake my wife up. And so I've been on nighttime mode, uh, making my way through the ebook of Ursula Le Guin's collected novellas. All of, she collected her novellas into a very large tome called The Found and the Lost. Um, they are amazing. She says in her introduction that she actually thinks the novella is what she's best at and it was her favorite form to work in. And, and I think maybe she's not wrong, particularly the second half of the collection is just like one stunningly beautiful story about people trying to repair the world after another. I mean, it, it is just unbelievable collection of work. I probably would not have read it in its actual, you know, original book form because it's just too big and my my hands and back would eventually <laughs> suffer from reading it and I'd have to turn on a light and wake my wife up, which I don't want to do. So the that that I think is is a really really um uh great book that I'm happy to recommend. In terms of our theme for this week, our sort of shadow theme of Halloween, I I must 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 recommend uh, uh, this is a friend's book, so take that with a grain of salt, but I must recommend Jason Zinneman's Shock Value, which is a history um, based on very deep reportage and a love of the form and a almost comprehensive knowledge of horror cinema. It's about the kind of horror auteurs of the 70s, like Wes Craven and um John Carpenter and and how they changed horror cinema and ushered in what we know of as horror today. It is so good and so well reported and filled with juicy details and lots of, you know, opinionated writing. Uh, Men, Women and Chainsaws makes an appearance in it. Uh, you will learn so much about uh, horror movies and come to love them more through reading it. I just highly recommend it. All right. So um, I'm going to keep it so simple this week. Uh, and recommend three songs. Um, I love them each in very different ways. The first is uh, uh, the old Leeds uh, band, The Wedding Present, The Weddows. Love those guys. They had a song I didn't know. It's kind of a monster rock. So I think of them as the quintessentially sort of, you know, post Velvet Underground, understated indie rockers. I mean, I think kind of late 70s, early 80s was their heyday. They had a song called Blue Eyes. Maybe it was their play for a bigger sound and more commercial airplay. I just didn't know that phase of their career. Didn't know that song is so good. It just, it just, it just totally, totally rocks. And then uh, um, I would describe Courtney Barnett maybe as a Iwaswafop. Um, I wish she were a friend of the program. I I think she's sort of a friend of the program. She's a friend of a. This is what she is. She's a friend of a friend of the program. Her I know her partner listens to to us and that's how we connected with them both um deli delightfully down in australia she has a cover of the old velvet underground song speaking of them um i'll be your mirror that just slaps it's so good i mean it actually almost literally slaps her she's playing it on a I, whatever acoustic guitar she's playing on that is just a great instrument it just is is resonant and sensitive to the touch and she kind of this is not quite the right word, but she's sort of banging it in a way, but like with total control. It's just this really percussive style of playing a good old, like, I don't know, Gibson J45 that just brings out its, its, its tonalities. I find it hard her singing is beautiful on it. It's just a, it is a truly, truly great stripped down acoustic cover of I'll Be Your Mirror. And then finally, I, this just proves what an open mind I have that the children of Will Smith and Jada Pinkett are making music that I like, that I'm not afraid to admit I like. Willow, do you guys know Willow? This song, Meet Me at Our Spot? No. No. It's I'm so old. Uh, I know, and so am I, but this makes me marginally younger to listen to this song. It's so good. Meet Me at Our Spot is a really great pop song. You should check it out. It's wonderful. Isaac, we get you again next week. 
next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Superb. I've not had my fill. Uh, you're one of the OG fops. Uh, and Dana, as always, just a complete pleasure. It was. I loved the conversation this week. I didn't really like almost any of the art we were talking about, but I loved our conversations about it. I know it proves that that total non-correlation once again, right? The thing under discussion and the quality of the discussion, no, no link there. Uh, whatsoever. Okay, you will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. The emails have been great. Like they spur us on to further thoughts and conversations like the ebook one. Email us at culturefest at slate.com. We really do love it and we try to respond to everybody. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. This was a good one. Uh, we'll see you soon. Cheapo Air. For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.